0: Just want to give a big shout out to our interns, Kez and Sky for doing the filming and the editing and the production of that wonderful video, and also Andy Slack for doing the sound mixing as well. So this evening, we're going to be doing a little bit of a visual experiment. So do you see this canvas board here? Um, my wife, Rebecca, has actually drawn a visual representation of my message. And she's done one for the message next week and the message the week after that. So by week three, you will see each board next to each other and it will visually summarize the whole um, message series. So at the end of the service, I'll I'll turn it around and I invite you to just come, look and just reflect on what God has been saying. So we're going to be starting a new series this evening. It's called Never Alone. And like Ian said earlier, it's based on the um, verse from John's Gospel where Jesus says, I am never alone for the Father is always with me. I am never alone for the Father is always with me. And really that that captures what the series is all about. It's the idea that, that God did not create us to be alone, that he created us for connection, for community, for covenantal companionship both with himself and each other. And that's how it was in the beginning, like we just read, before the fall, before humanity was exiled from the Garden of Eden. But we all know that this that the fall did happen, that that sin did enter the world. But what we're gonna see is that God did not forsake humanity after the fall. What we see is that even after man is expelled from the garden, God continues to pursue mankind. We see that all the way through the Old Testament. He's constantly pursuing humanity, trying to bring us back to that place of walking with him like we did in the Garden of Eden. And that pursuit of humanity, that ultimately culminates and climaxes with the baby in the Christmas manger, the prophesied Messiah who would save his people from their sins. Emmanuel, that is God with us. That literally the creator of the universe, entering time and space, becoming flesh, dwelling with his creation once again, like he did back in the garden. But Jesus didn't just come to dwell with humanity. He came to lay his life down as a sacrifice, a love sacrifice to remove the barrier of sin that separated us from him so that we never have to walk alone. And that's what this series is about. So I'll be kicking off this evening by going back to the creation, looking at what it was like, what God's original intention was for us. Next week, Nikki's going to be looking at what happened after the fall. um, And she's going to be tracing through... how God continued to deal with humanity, but also the prophesied Messiah that was to come, that would restore that relationship, and then finally Louise will round off the series by looking at Jesus and looking at Paul, um, and she'll one of the things that she'll be showing is that both of these men were abandoned, they were arrested, and yet God was still with them. They had that that peace. So that's a quick roadmap of where we are heading but tonight let's go back to the creation so turn with me if you've got your bibles to genesis chapter one so just as a bit of background in genesis there's basically there's two creation narratives the first creation narrative is from a universal perspective so it's a big picture of how everything was created right so it's how the sun and the moon and the stars and the whole universe was made climaxing on the sixth day with the crown of creation, mankind. But then the second creation narrative from chapter two, chapter three and four, it takes a more intimate approach. It zooms in on a particular garden and there's a specific emphasis on the unique relationship that God has with humanity. And it focuses on um, humanity's special place, Um, within the creation and God's purpose for us so we're quickly going to look at the first creation narrative but we're mainly going to be focusing on the second so just on the first one so this is from verse uh, 26 in chapter one it says then God said let us make man in our image after our likeness On the earth. So there's basically three things that we see here three reasons why God created people in these verses. The first was to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth. The second is to exercise dominion over the world, that is, to look after it. And it says that twice. But most importantly, because it's repeated four times, it is that humans were created to be bearers of God's image. We were created to be bearers of God's image. What does that mean? Okay, well, there's a couple of things it means, but mainly what it means is that we are supposed to reflect God's nature and God's character. We are designed to reflect his nature in our actions, how we treat people, how we live our lives. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means that we are supposed to reflect Jesus in how we live our life. So they're the three things, to, to be fruitful, to look after the world, and to bear God's image. Now, let's go to the second creation narrative, which is chapter 2 from verse 4. So it says, these are the generations of the heavens on the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the heavens on the earth, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the fields had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils a breath of life and man became a living creature or a living soul, it says in some translations. Now that verse there in the Hebrew, it's really interesting. There's a word play. So it actually says, The Lord God formed the Adam from the Adama. So it's a bit like in English saying um, the Lord God formed the earthlings from the earth. It's to highlight that man comes from the earth. It's to highlight the physical nature of man. But then it says that God breathed the breath of life into his nostrils and he became a living creature. And this is really important because it shows that the nature of man isn't just physical. But it's also spiritual. We come from the earth, but also we've got a spiritual nature because God breathed the breath of life into us. And the young man, Elihu, in the book of Job, understands this. He says this in chapter 34. He says, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty has given me life. And then in the following chapter, he says this. He says, If God was to take back his spirit and withdraw his breath, all life would cease And humanity would again turn to dust. And the writer recognizes there that without God, humanity is nothing but dust. But that's what makes us special. God has breathed his breath into our lungs. And that's what sets us apart from the animals. That we are more than just flesh and bone. We are more than just a, a cosmic accident. That we have the gift of life, the gift of God himself that we have worth and value because God has breathed into us, that we are made in his image, which is amazing. And the very act of breathing into Adam is very intimate. It's face-to-face. It's like performing CPR on somebody. It's a very intimate thing, right? So it's portraying already the close, personal, intimate relationship that God had with humanity at the start. That's his intention, right? So let's see what comes next. Verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And of, the, sorry, and of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and is good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Phishon. This is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold in that land is good. Delium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second is Gihon. This is the one that flowed around the land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth is Euphrates. (coughs) So what we see here is there's a river flowing out of Eden. okay, And it's watering the whole known world at that time. And it's this idea that that, that life comes from the presence of God. That seems to be the idea there. And we actually read in Ezekiel uh, chapter 28 and Isaiah uh, chapter 14 that the Garden of Eden was on top of a mountain. The Garden of Eden was on top of a mountain known as the Mountain of God, which makes sense because the water flows downhill, right? So what we've got is the Garden of Eden on top of a mountain. It's a summit where heaven and earth are meeting, where man meets and walks with God. And this sets a precedent because for the rest of the Bible, we see God bringing people to the top of mountains to meet with them. Like Moses on Mount Sinai, and there's plenty more examples. Now, I'll come back to that later because it's really important, but for now, let's just go to verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. Now, notice here that God only plants the Garden of Eden after he's created Adam. In other words, the Garden of Eden was created for mankind. Okay? So he takes Adam and he places it in the garden to look after it. Now, it's just, now an interesting side note here, that even in a perfect world, work was necessary for man's own good. He was put in the garden to look after it, to, to work it right. And it's because man doesn't thrive in idleness. We're made in God's image. And even Jesus says, my father is always working. So even in a perfect world, it's still good for man to work because man thrives when he's got a purpose. So God plants a beautiful garden a special place that is set apart from the rest of the earth, a kind of a sacred sanctuary where, where he can dwell and be with mankind. That's the image here. So in, it, so in essence, Eden can, can be thought of as almost like a, a cosmic garden temple, a place where God comes to meet with man. Okay, Verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now again, this is really important. Notice here that Adam's got a purpose. He's got a job. He's in a beautiful garden and he's walking with God. It says in the next chapter that he walks with God in the cool of the day. He's got a close, intimate, personal relationship with God. And yet, what does God say? He says, it is not good for man to be alone. Why does he say that? What is God trying to convey here? I think he's trying to say this, that God, although you have, sorry, Adam, that although you have me, that is not sufficient. You need another human being to relate to. God himself is saying that people need people, that God made us dependent on each other as well as him. Now, don't misunderstand me, okay? Man deeply needs God. And in some ways, man cannot maintain his humanity when apart from God. And when man is separated from God, he not only loses an essential part of his humanity, but the reason for his humanity, okay? But equally, if you place somebody who knows God in solitary confinement for a very long time, Will that person not go crazy? I'm pretty sure they would go crazy because we are meant, we are created for connection with God and each other. Uh, And I think that's the point that he's trying to make here. And that's what we're trying to get across in this series, that we are created for connection with God, but also each other. We're not created to be alone. God doesn't want us to be alone. Verse 19, now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field. But to Adam, there was no helper fit for him. So here we see Adam is naming the animals, which is, is illustrating his authority over them. It's a bit like when a parent names their child. It's because the parent's responsible for them, right? So, um, but also, by naming the animals, Adam's um, demonstrating a level of cognition and consciousness that goes beyond a kind of mere animalistic survival instinct. It's his first um, sort of role as caretaker of the creation. It's showing that that, um, God's, Plan for humanity is special that he's got a specific role for man that's set apart from the rest of the animal kingdom. Continue reading in verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of the ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this, last, is the bone of my bone and the flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now these verses, um, we see the creation of the woman, and we see that God literally forms Eve from Adam's rib. So we're talking about a really close connection here. And just as Eve was taken from, um, from um, sorry, what's oh, my place there? So the marital relationship of the man and woman coming together, um, it says that they, should, they, they, they come together and become one flesh, right? They come together and become one flesh. Now, the Hebrew word there is the Hebrew word echad, okay? And it comes from um, the most famous prayer in the Old Testament. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, and it says, this, it, it says, The Lord our God, the Lord is echad, the Lord is one, the Lord is oneness. So the oneness of the marital union is a reflection of the oneness of God, if that makes sense. So not only are we made in God's image, but the very relationship between man and woman is a reflection of God's nature himself. Um, In other words, our relationships with each other are supposed to be a reflection of him and his relationship within himself. Okay, Um, and then finally, verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The man and wife were naked and were not ashamed. Now, correctly understood, I think this is one of the, the most beautiful verses in the entire Bible. They were naked and were not ashamed. Now, when it's speaking about nakedness here, it's not primarily focused on a physical nakedness. It's referring to something much deeper. It's a spiritual, emotional vulnerability, a transparency, a pure, open, deep, intimate relationship with God and each other, free from shame and guilt and fear. Can you imagine that? Being able to have a relationship that pure with a friend, with a partner, with a parent and with God, that was how it was at first. A perfect relationship, being able to share your unfiltered thoughts and feelings without hesitation or reservation. Wow, that's how chapter two ends. That's like, that's the purpose. But we know what happens next. Eden's perpetual bliss doesn't last long. Eve was deceived by the serpent and sin entered the world. So, what does it say in the next chapter? As soon as Adam disobeyed God, it says this. It says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. Now, I think this is one of the most devastating lines in the entire Bible. It's a complete reversal, a complete contrast. It's the the pivotal moment of where man realizes that his relationship with God has been affected. There's a sudden awareness, a realization that something profound has now changed. They can no longer be be transparent and open with God because now they've got something to hide. They feel shame and guilt and fear. So what do they do? It says they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves cloths. They cover themselves because of their guilt and their shame. It's showing that the relationship that they had has been affected. And it then says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. They hid from God. Now, I'm sure we can all relate to this. I remember a few weeks ago at home, I walked into a room and I saw my three-year-old son pushing over his little sister. And as soon as he turned around and he saw that I'd seen the whole thing... So guilt and shame just floated over him and he looked at the floor and he just wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't even look at me. Well, because he was so ashamed. Well, we can be like that, can't we? We can be like that with God. We can all relate to how Adam and Eve felt. When we've really messed up, instead of going to God and asking for forgiveness, we hide and we withdraw from him, don't we? Because we're just so laid down by guilt and shame. But what was God's response? What does God say next? He says, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, this is a profound question because remember that God already knows everything. God knows where they are. So why is he asking? He's not asking or inquiring about their physical location. He's asking something much deeper than that. It's a question that is revealing something about Adam's new spiritual and emotional condition it's a tragic reflection of god's awareness that the close communion and connection that he had has been affected it's been broken the once unbroken connection has now been severed replaced by guilt and fear and shame and a spiritual separation but the question where are you is also the beginning of redemption is the beginning of redemption. The very fact that God calls out to Adam, despite his disobedience, is a powerful testimony of God's unchanging love. It reveals that God continues to desire that close, intimate relationship with humanity, even in the face of sin. And it shows us that God's love is not based on human perfection or performance, but on his unfailing steadfast love a desire to restore what was lost and and that is what the rest of the bible is about it's about redemption it's about bringing um, redemption restoration everything to bring us back to where, where we were at the start that's the whole story of the bible is redemption So after the fall, we see the rest of the Old Testament that, that God continues to pursue humanity. And like I said earlier, Eden was on top of a mountain, right? So all the way through the Old Testament, you see God bringing people back to the top of Mounted, Mount Sinai, um, Mount Ararat, um, Mount Moriah, wherever it was. It's this pattern that's repeated all the way through to bring God back to, to that place. But it's also, it's looking forward. It's looking forward to the ultimate mountaintop, Golgotha, the summit where Jesus was, was crucified. Now, there's something important here. When Jesus died, it says there was an earthquake. And then we're told that the veil of the temple was split into two. Now, this is is really important because what the veil represented was the barrier of sin that separated man from God. And embroidered on the veil of the temple was was cherubs. So just as cherubs guarded the entrance into the Garden of Eden so that man couldn't re-enter, the veil which separated man from God was also covered with cherubs. So when we see the veil of the temple being torn from top to bottom, when Jesus was on that cross, he's showing something incredibly profound. He's showing us that, that the barrier of separation has been removed. And it's showing us that the way back to Eden has been opened again. The way back to div- to entering into the divine presence, once again, has been opened up. And that's what we see a few weeks later, after the resurrection, we see more of this Eden language. John chapter 20, it says that Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, receive Holy Spirit, echoing back to when God breathed on Adam in the garden. But this time, Jesus is breathing on the disciples. It's a new creation. They are born again. It's a new start, a new start of of intimacy once again with humanity. But this time, instead of um, man dwelling with God in a garden-like temple, there's a little bit of a twist because the God Spirit comes to dwell in us so that we individually become like mini models of Eden wow amazing and we see more of this eden imagery in john's gospel uh john chapter 7 jesus says whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water by this he meant the holy spirit so just as water flowed out of eden like we read earlier out of the divine presence now the spirit flows out of our hearts because god lives in us So wherever we go, whatever we do, God walks with us. And therefore, we never have to experience loneliness again. It's pretty powerful imagery, right? Now, I'm not just just speaking about here uh, about a, a social loneliness. I'm speaking about a spiritual loneliness. Now, loneliness, it basically means to be alone. It means to be separated, to be isolated from community so you might not feel it but if you are not in a relationship with god you are in fact isolated you are alone because you are outside of the relationship that you were created for so by definition you are alone now i haven't always been a christian in fact i didn't become a christian until i was 22 And I remember the months leading up to it very well. I remember sometimes I'd wake up in the morning and and just think, you know, surely there's there's more to life than this. I had a great job. I had a nice car, lots of friends, and a great social life. And I was really kind of living for the parties and the music and the festivals and all that sort of stuff. And and don't get me wrong, I, I enjoyed it. I had a good time. But there was something about it all that just didn't fully satisfy me. It's like when you get a new gadget or a new car, at first you, you, you're really excited and it kind of brings you um, enjoyment and satisfaction. But a few days later or a few weeks later, and that excitement starts to fade away. And then you move on to the next thing. And then after a while, that kind of fades away as well. And, it's this, and my experience was it was this perpetual cycle of kind of chasing after things that ultimately only gave you short-term satisfaction. And life kind of started to feel like I was climbing this ladder, constantly chasing after things. But I I realized that when you reach the top of the ladder, there's actually nothing there. There's actually nothing there. And I just look at all of these these millionaires these billionaires celebrities they have everything that this world can offer they've got the wealth they've got money they've got, got the fame they've, they've, they've got it all and yet many of them are deeply depressed why is that it's because they've reached the top of the ladder and they have realised there's nothing there many of them turn to drugs or even take their own life, because they realised there's nothing there. And that's what I began to realize. I realized that there was a deep part of me that yearned for more than just the mundane. And I discovered that there was a hole in my heart, a hole in every human heart that only God can fill. And that we try to fill this, this void with our careers and, and success or, or wealth and hobbies and relationships and don't get me wrong, these things in and of themselves aren't necessarily wrong, but none of them last forever. You know, it says in the book of Ecclesiastes, it says, God put eternity in the human heart. And it's very true. Because outside of a relationship with God, you are never gonna find your true purpose. The hole in your heart is one that only he can fill. Can I get the band up, please? So I just want to summarize by saying this, that, that God designed you, me, all of us, for a close and intimate relationship. He created us for community and covenantal companionship with um, himself and with other people. And that God wants you in his family. He doesn't want to just abandon you as a cosmic orphan. He stretches out his hand with an offer. In John's gospel, it says this, it says, to all who did receive him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So if that's you this evening, if you are still wandering the wilderness of this world as a cosmic orphan, let me ask you that question. Are you willing to receive him like it says? Are you willing to believe and put your trust in Jesus, recognizing that through his sacrificial death and his burial and his resurrection, that he has removed that barrier of sin that separates us from God? And if that's you, we'd love to pray with you after the service or maybe you already are a child of God you already know God but but maybe you've not been living it maybe you're not as close to him as you could be so maybe tonight in the worship you just want to draw close to him and reflect on questions like um how can you What needs to change in your life to prioritize him? What needs to change so that you can draw closer to him? Because his word says, if you draw close to me, I will draw close to you. God stretches out his hand, but but you've got to move as well. I'm just gonna end with, um, it's a testimony from my wife. It's something that she um, experienced a couple of weeks ago and She wanted me to share it with you all this evening um i'm just gonna read what she said it's about how she realized recently that she's never alone so this is what she said she said a few weeks ago i experienced something i will never forget for several reasons most prominently that no matter how alone I felt that in the hour of need, God was in fact with me. So a couple of weeks ago, Felix and I were watching a TV series just after eating tea. Suddenly my chest became tight and persisted to feel tighter and tighter. Soon I became very uncomfortable and struggled to catch my breath. Once my left arm began to tingle, I feared the worst, perhaps a heart attack or even a stroke. After 25 minutes of my refusal, Felix finally called 999. During the wait, I internally begged God to help me, to save me. I actually thought I was going to die. Through ragged breaths, I asked Felix to tell the children that I love them. And I fully convinced myself that it was the end. I prayed that God would send me a sign that he was there, something comfort, reassurance, just just anything, but I got a deafening silence. This very much increased my level of panic. Where was God when I truly needed him? Once the paramedics arrived, it took 45 minutes to calm me down. They instantly informed me that I was not having a heart attack, but a severe panic attack. I couldn't accept it. And it took them 45 minutes to, to regulate my breathing. And after they had left, I felt physically exhausted, both physically and spiritually. Whether I was dying or not, why didn't God make his presence known to me? After a difficult night of little sleep, during my morning Bible study, the devotion was clear. I had been a fool. God was telling me that he is always with me, that he shouldn't need to show himself for me to believe that. And since I have questions of obviously, but didn't fully have faith, the devotion was followed by a link song, yet by the Maverick City music. Lord, don't give up on me yet. I know I'm not my best, but Lord, I'm trying. Don't give up on me yet. And instantly the Footprints poem came to me. I didn't feel God next to me last night because he was carrying me. He's always there, so his presence was already with me. No sudden change was needed because he never left. That's what Beck said. (laughs) Let me just pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God that has created us for um, community, that you have created us for an intimate, personal relationship with you. And that even when we went our wayward way, you stretched out and you kept pursuing us and that you sent your son to die in our place to remove the barrier of sin so that that relationship can once again be restored. And that through your spirit, you come to dwell in our hearts. I pray that tonight we can really get hold of that truth and that truth can transform us. It can transform our priorities Um, and it can just be something that we experience in our day-to-day life. I pray that if there's anything in the way of that, um, that you reveal what it is. Um, And yeah, just, I pray that everyone leaves here this evening closer to you than when they first walked through these doors. And we ask that in Jesus' name.